we get better over time. Certainly our cognitive capacity declines a little bit over time and quite rapidly in old age, but as adults get more mature, they by definition have more success. That's Adam Alter, New York Times bestselling author and professor at NYU Stern School of Business. If you look, there is a huge amount of luck, empirically so, in successful careers. People do stumble on things, there are important moments that happen to change the trajectory of their lives, but also you make that happen. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Adam Alter to discuss why failures often pave the way for our successes, why it's better to strive for excellence instead of perfection, and how to get unstuck when it matters most. If you're moving, if you're making progress, you demonstrate to yourself that you're not stuck. And that's very important because the emotional consequences of being stuck are quite damaging. And the sense of progress, that sense of velocity that comes from progress is very important for making further progress. So stuckness compounds, gets worse over time, but so does unsticking compound and get better over time. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. All right, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Good to be here. So your latest book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, it's incredible. Thank I, you. I know you and I were just speaking about that before we started recording, but I'm curious as we get started, what motivated you to write this book in particular? I think all of my books have been about issues that I've faced personally, but I also think they're issues that everyone faces, and that's how you know something is probably worthy of, of a book. It's the kind of thing that you personally as the writer have faced, and it's the kind of thing you think other people have faced too. And in this one in particular, it's really about the fact that humans as a species get stuck constantly. We're in, in between periods of progress and periods of friction and hurdles and barriers and challenges. When that happens, it's very hard for us to deal with. We don't feel good about it. I've been collecting data from people for many years now and, and no one likes being stuck. But because it's inevitable, it's ubiquitous, it's a part of life, it's very useful to be able to move through those periods with something like an algorithm. And so I've been thinking about this for about 20 years now, and um, the book is the product of that. It's an algorithmic approach to kind of solving the problem of stuckness. I know we're going to talk about being stuck and getting unstuck, but the term stuck covers a broad range of contexts. Like, how do you define it? Yeah. So I think of stuckness, there are a few essential ingredients as I think of it for this book. The first one is that it's got to be protracted stuckness. I'm not talking about you know, the momentary frustrations that we all have every single day. I'm talking about the kinds of things that plague you for months maybe years, maybe decades, maybe even a whole lifetime in some cases. I'm also interested in the kinds of things that are susceptible to intervention from us. 
And so there are kinds of stuckness where you just don't really have much of a choice. You're in a situation that's not perhaps where you want to be, but it's just where you are. Think about what happened to the world in March 2020. We were all stuck in place. We weren't allowed to travel. The government had decided that that was the best thing in that moment. And there are some psychologically interesting questions about that. But to me, the more interesting thing and what I focus on here is the majority of cases of stuckness that are, I think, susceptible to strategy and intervention where we have some agency and we can make positive changes in our own lives and the lives of other people. And so it's protracted and also susceptible to intervention. Got it. And early on, I know in the book, you state that the first step to getting unstuck is accepting that barriers are universal. If you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I think that's really important. One of the, the really interesting psychological features of stuckness is it's one of these ideas that we recognize that globally speaking, everyone has problems. We get stuck sometimes. Sometimes we can't move forward. But when it actually happens to you, it feels almost like a personal affront. It feels very isolating. Even though I've been collecting these responses from people around the world for many years, now I've got thousands of responses. Basically, everyone is stuck in at least one or two respects. They are very quick to draw those to mind and to explain what they are. But then they also say, I feel alone. This is very isolating. I don't feel good about it. And yet they're all saying that. And so the sort of loneliness of being stuck and the sense that it's a sort of personal and very idiosyncratic experience that just is about your life is problematic and it really hampers us. There's also a very interesting cultural difference between the West and the East on this front. So in the West, in places like the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, we tend to anticipate that things are going to continue the way they have been. And that means when things change, which they inevitably do, we're blindsided by that change. And we're quite slow to get used to the idea that we're going to be stuck if we keep doing what we're doing. In the East, in places like Japan, South Korea, and China, a lot of the religious philosophies and philosophies generally, Eastern philosophies, understand that there's a kind of shift between endpoints, Taoism, the yin-yang. And what that does is it makes you nimble in the face of change. You anticipate it. And when it arrives, you don't feel blindsided. You just say, all right, well, let's get on with it. Let's figure it out. That sense of acceptance that, you know, this is where I am and now I need to do something about it is very important. So I actually want to elaborate on that, both, you know, just the idea of endpoints and the importance of having natural endpoints, but also I know you talk about just plateaus and how they're <laughs> inevitable in our pursuit of goals, if you could speak to that. Yeah. So this is a very widespread phenomenon. It's known as the plateau effect. And the idea is that the things that you do that might be useful for a certain period of time inevitably become less useful over time. And there are a few different reasons for that. One is that because situations change, what you were doing that was working in one context might not work as well in a new context. So you make all this progress, this situation shifts and suddenly you hit a plateau. So you no longer make progress. It's not necessarily that you see a decline. It's just that you stop seeing the same gains that you had before. The other is that this is really, I think, most vividly expressed in the way we, we exercise our bodies. But the kinds of things we do to exercise stop working after a while. They just don't have the same effects. So the returns you get decline. There's this really phenomenal study that followed people who were at the beginning of the study sedentary. They weren't working out at all. And then they got a regime, a very simple 20-minute regime, and they were followed for seven years. And what the researchers found was that they did the same sort of set of exercises. It was a fairly small constrained set. And they did the same thing over and over several times a week for seven years. And what they discovered was that for the first roughly 12 to 18 months, almost everyone experiences very rapid gains. And then you hit a plateau and something has to change. You've got to change the regime. You've got to do things differently. Otherwise, you just stop seeing gains. And sometimes they stop dead altogether. So that's the plateau effect. But it also applies to things like learning a language, learning a new skill. 
if you always try the same techniques, you're eventually going to hit a wall. It's interesting in the case that you give. So it's like we seek out adaptations, right? Or just I've even seen people create almost artificial discomfort, if you will, or forcing functions that kind of propel them to break through plateaus. Is there any like, I guess, science behind that? Yeah, there is. There is quite a lot, actually. One of the areas that I've studied in particular, I'm a huge sports fan. And one of the things I'm always curious about, and I've asked some some really talented coaches this question, should you challenge your athletes beyond where they are capable in this moment? Or should you always keep them just below that level? You know, should you sort of give them the confidence that they can build on and then you never really push them too far? Or should you sometimes push them too far? Is that sort of a necessary ingredient for progress? And the camps divided. There are two camps, I guess, and different coaches think different things. So I wanted to investigate this. One of the things I did with some colleagues of mine, some psychologists and economists, was we looked at NCAA basketball teams and we looked at their performance, depending on what their preseason looked like. We wanted to see if the preseason difficulty, in other words, were they stretched beyond their capacity or were they playing easy games, whether that predicted their outcomes during the tournament and during the season. We found that it did, and we found that the harder the, the games, and there was no ceiling to this, the harder those preseason games, the better they did. And so I, I think you can crush someone's spirit if the situation is too difficult, but I think a lot of the time we don't make things difficult enough, and there's a lot of evidence that we grow tremendously in the face of, of hardship. I call this concept hardship inoculation. It's like getting a small dose of a vaccine and getting stronger as a result of that. It's the same basic idea. And what about on the other side? I know just the discussion of like natural endpoints, how it seems that the closer we are to the end of something, the more likely we are to achieve it. So it kind of goes in the face of almost like this infinite game. It's almost creating milestones, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So the, the idea here is that we get a, a sort of burst of motivation as we approach a goal state, an end state, whatever we're, we're striving for. So it could be something physical like the end line at the end of a marathon or a triathlon, or it could be you know, you're raising money for a charitable cause. People tend to donate faster when it looks like they've almost hit the goal and their money will get very close to the goal. It varies across lots of different domains of human experience. But in general, we we are, and not just humans, other animals too are, are strongly motivated by the sense that we're making progress. And the best way to see that you're making progress is to see something approach you, the gap between you and a desired end state receding. And when that happens, we see that people are much more motivated. They behave much more aggressively and pour a lot more energy into what are, whatever it is they may be doing. Yeah. yeah. It's just, we had a guest on this podcast who was a, a Green Beret, and he talked about the most difficult aspect of his training was at one point they had to run, but they wouldn't tell them how long they were running. So it was almost demoralizing. You'd run 20 miles and you'd think, are we getting close to the end? Then you'd get to you know a signpost that would say, keep running. And in his mind, what kept him going was just to get to the next signpost. He had to create some sort of milestone. Yeah, there's a, there's a really interesting concept that I talk about in the book. It's known as teleo-anticipation, which literally means prediction of the end or anticipating the end. And humans are pretty good at apportioning their energy for a finite goal. If it's a marathon, you run very differently from a 10K or a 5K or an ultra marathon. But if you don't know where the end point is, you can't rely on teleo-anticipation. You always have to leave something in the tank. And that's very, very difficult for us. And honestly, that's how most of the goals in life work. A lot of things are kind of infinite games that we strive for and that we we spend our time on. And so I think that's that's an extra challenge that we face. And I know later in the book, you talk about just the mindset that we could have towards challenges and struggles. I know many people often view these negatively, but you emphasize that they actually are indicators of progress and growth. How can you know people who are listening to this podcast or leaders just reframe their perception of challenges and leverage them into opportunities for growth? Broadly speaking, there are two ways to think of something that's hard. One way is to do what is, I think, human instinct and to see it as a threat. 
it's nice to do things that are easy. There's a reason we spend hours and hours watching Netflix and scrolling through social media platforms and eight hours a day on our phones and things like that. It's easy and a lot of life feels hard. And so we, we seek out the easy. And that makes total sense from a human energy apportionment perspective. You know, I understand why people do that and I do the same to an extent. But it's the things that are hard, that are beneficial, not just now, but in the very long run. I think they make us stronger. We know that. We've talked about that. They make us more resilient in the face of challenges that might come up later on. But it's really interesting. If you speak to people at the end of their lives, you ask them to look back on the things that they found most rewarding or the things that were you know, most disappointing. No one ever says, I wish I hadn't said yes to that challenge. It just That's never a response you hear. You never hear someone say, I really regret taking on a challenge. And no one really says, I wish I hadn't done that thing that I failed at. What they usually say is, I kind of wish I had done more. I'd said yes more often, that I'd done the hard things. And I regret that I'm now at this point where I don't have that option anymore. But it's those periods where we feel really alive, when we're making progress, when we're moving forward. And so I think you sort of owe it to your future self to take on those challenges, both because it makes you stronger when that future self deals with really big hardship, which comes up in life, but also because at the end of our lives, that's where we derive the most meaning from. And so I think it's worthwhile, if only for that reason. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting was when you're talking about the role that age seems to play in entrepreneurial success. Like mm -hmm. you know, one would think that sometimes the younger founders would be more successful, but the data shows it's those who are sometimes in their 40s and 50s experience higher rates of success and even more successful exits. Why is that? I mean, is it just experience? Is it knowledge? What do you attribute that to? Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of discussion about prodigies and precocious talent and young people who are very successful. And it makes total sense that we focus on that because that's on a certain level, that's more unusual. That's more surprising. The idea that with less skill, with less experience, people might succeed suggests that they've acquired more of, of some valuable attribute that is required for success more quickly than other people do. And so that's that's always interesting. And that that gets the lion's share of attention in articles that are written in movies and so on. But when you do that, when you have a particular thing that's interesting because it's eccentric, you forget about the majority. And the majority is such that we get better over time. Certainly our cognitive capacity declines a little bit over time and quite rapidly in old age. But as adults get more mature, they, by definition, have more success. They know more things just by virtue of having been alive for longer. They have failed more, which is really important. They've had more chances to fail. It's true they've had more chances to succeed, but it, what's more important is they've had more chances to fail. And so that means if this is your 27th attempt at a venture, you're creating a business or whatever it might be, some creative pursuit, you know 27 things that don't work. And so you're by definition, diverging from that big chunk of things that didn't work and getting closer and closer to things that do work. And so it's not surprising. It's only surprising in the backdrop of all this written about young people, but it's not surprising that people in their 40s and 50s tend to generally be more successful entrepreneurs. And I'm curious on the topic of failure. It's like, where do you draw the line, right? Because generally what seems to work well is if there's been some sort of behavioral change that's resulted as a result of somebody learning from this failure and making different decisions. So I'm curious, at what point is it seen as like failure as an asset versus this person just makes bad decisions? Yeah. I mean, it sort of depends, right? You've got to be, you've got to be a bit of a human psychologist. You've got to think about what this particular failure represents. There's failure at very basic tasks. And there's failure at extensions, tasks that are designed to challenge. There's failure that comes from doing something different. There's failure at, from trying something different. 
I think for me, the biggest hat tip that people get for failure or should get, from me at least, as far as I'm concerned, is when they say, you know, everyone's doing this one thing and it seems to be successful at like a seven out of 10. That's not what I want. I want an eight or a nine or a 10. And so what I'm going to go out and do is I'm going to try five different approaches that I might fail at. All five of them might be failures, but at least at the end of that, I'll know the answer to the question, is there a better way? I talk about this Olympian who swam for the, the US Olympic team in 1988 and 1992, Dave Burkoff. And he was not built like a lot of the backstroke swimmers of the time and, and today as well. The average world record holder is six foot three or six foot four. He was about 5'10". It's a very big difference. It's half a foot difference. But he was incredibly curious and he was an experimentalist by nature, which basically means that he had this philosophy, I'm not going to take anything for granted. That's how kids usually think. They ask a million questions because nothing is orthodoxy for them. They don't yet know that this is just the way things are done because they're done that way. And Burkhoff was like that. So he would try different things as he was swimming and he would do the backstroke with a slightly different tweak and then a different tweak from that and a third tweak. Because he was inquisitive and analytic, he started to recognize that when his entire body was immersed under the water, he swam much faster. But naturally, when your whole body's underwater you, and you're, you're exerting yourself, your body cries out for oxygen. So the instinct of everyone who'd ever swum before was to pop out of the water as soon as possible and grab a pull of oxygen. And Burkhoff talks about training his body to stay underwater for longer. So instead of the 10 meters that everyone was spending at the beginning of the backstroke, he would do 15 and then 20 and then 25 to the point where he was doing 40, 45 meters underwater, almost the first lap of the pool on a 100 meter swim, a two lap race. And he found out that you swim about 80% faster when you're fully immersed. And he broke world records. So this tweak, the highest form of payback you can get in swimming is to break a world record. And all he did basically was ask the question. And so he failed probably a thousand times with techniques before that, but it was those failures that paved the way in this case for a colossal success. Interesting, interesting. And I know you talk about in the book, like embracing beginnerhood as a way to just kind of maintain this like mind expanding perspective. So that sometimes if someone becomes a subject matter expert or it becomes, this is the way we've always done it or the best practices of an industry, for example, that can become quite limiting. Yeah, exactly. The way I think about life is I'm a huge fan of diversity in our experiences and our pursuits. I think if you only do one thing, if you look at how you break down your time and it's all spent doing one thing, that's almost never the way to live, at least for me. And so what I like to have and what I think is really useful in other people as I've seen it is you should have something you do that you are really good at. Like you feel comfortable doing it. You feel confident. When you describe yourself doing that to other people, you don't say, I do this thing. You say, I am this thing. For example, I run a lot. I don't say I run. I say I'm a runner. It's a part of my identity. So that's a thing that I do a lot and it's central to who I am. But you should also do things, two other kinds of things. One kind of thing where you're kind of good at it and you do it a fair amount, but you're not a total expert and you're still striving and you're still getting a little bit better, but you haven't hit a full plateau. You can see room for improvement, but you've got to strive a little bit to do that. And then you should also do things where you are an absolute novice. You are objectively not good at this thing. Everything you do, it's a steep learning curve and the gains are tremendous. And you may never get to the point where you're an expert as you are with the first thing I mentioned. But just by embracing these kinds of different levels of expertise, I think you become a much more rounded human being and someone who's much more capable of dealing with those are the hardships you invite into your life by saying, I want to do this thing, but there are a lot that you don't. And I think you get better at dealing with those by artificially dealing with the ones you invite into your world. 
Yeah. Because there's this expression in kind of the Silicon Valley venture capital space I once heard that it said that the best investors are those that have strong opinions loosely held. And yeah. I know in the book you talk about that questioning yourself twice is better than relying solely on initial instincts or gut instincts. Why is that? Yeah, I, it's one of my favorite quotes is from the golfer Sam Snead, who is known for having one of the most beautiful golf swings of all time. And when people asked him, how do you do it? Like, what is it that's the magic secret sauce here? He basically said, you have to hold the golf club as though you're holding a small bird, not so loosely that it flies away and not so tightly that you crush it, which is exactly how I think the metaphor applies to holding a golf club. And I actually do find it helpful when I swing a golf club to use that metaphor, but I think it's much more useful as a general metaphor for how you should hold onto things that are intellectually important to you, like your orthodoxies and ideas about the world. They should be held tightly enough that you don't just say, oh, whatever goes, you know, everything's fine, but they should be held loosely enough so that you update and you change your opinions and you say, hey, that's interesting, but let me tweak that to make it a better reflection of the data I've collected over time. And so... I totally agree with that idea. The nice thing about being a beginner or about being somewhere between beginnerhood and expert is that you are still open to being molded to some extent. And even as an expert, you should be, but I think it's harder to be when you're really an expert at something. And it seems like that just as of late, or maybe it's always been this way, that, that society struggles with this and just in terms of our ability to change our minds, right? Just in the face of new information or new data, let's say you felt very strongly about one thing, but you received new information that completely contradicts your previous beliefs. Is it just because that also requires, in some cases, a, a shift in identity too? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You just hit on exactly what I think is going on. And I think that's more true today than ever before. You know, there are all those graphs, particularly in the US, looking at the political parties and showing that the political parties used to substantially overlap. And then in the 80s and 90s, they started to move further apart. Once the century arrived, they've spread even further apart. And so the ideas that are associated with each party, it's not so much that if you hold one set of ideas, you have to hold them all. It's that if you hold one set of ideas, that's your identity, that's who you are. And so it's very hard to say, I am this kind of person when the other kind of person is all the way on the other side of the map. And so I think so much of that lack of updating is that identity is wrapped up in it. But I also think it's a biased processing of the evidence. There's a lot of evidence in social and cognitive psychology that if I gave you very good arguments against an idea that you hold, and I gave you very bad arguments, arguments that suggest you should change your mind, you're going to find all sorts of good reasons to discount the ones that are inconsistent with your belief. And you will find all sorts of reasons to say, hey, I'm really swayed by the, the arguments that, that confirm and reaffirm my belief. That's just how humans are. We're very tribal. We perseverate, which means we just kind of stick with whatever it is that's been working for us as far as we're concerned. It, it makes us very stubborn. I'm curious, just kind of sh shifting gears a little bit, what role do you believe luck plays in success? Because my perspective on this has kind of shifted in recent years. I mm -hmm. know some people say, well, I work very hard, or you know, there's the expression like, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Luck by nature is unpredictable, but it seems like it does start to play a larger role in achieving an exponential level of success. Yeah, I mean, look at Dave Burkoff, who we mentioned, this guy who ends up discovering a new technique for swimming the backstroke, gets world records, wins gold medals at the Olympics. On a certain level, there's luck involved. The way I wrote the story, I emphasized the fact that he finds this technique, he's an experimentalist, but on a different level, he's a bit lucky. Like he finds something, he finds the right coach at Harvard, he happens to go to Harvard, very intellectual institution, not a traditional place to go for swimming. If he'd gone to a more traditional swimming school, he would have been told, this is what you do, otherwise you leave, you're out. But Harvard, there's this coach, Joe Bernal, who's very open to the idea that you try new things. 
and they work really well together. Tremendous amount of luck. But he made that happen. And so before the luck arrives, you can basically create a nest for it and say, this is where you should roost. And I think some people do that much more effectively than others. And so what I think you find is if you look, there is a huge amount of luck, empirically so, in successful careers. People do stumble on things. There are important moments that happen to change the trajectory of their lives. But also you make that happen. And I'll give you an example that I think illustrates this really well. This is from my own experience. There was a period in my life between, I think it was about 2008 and 2012, where I had this philosophy of essentially saying yes to every opportunity. Even opportunities where I was like, I'm busy, I'm tired, I don't want to do this. But for four years, I basically said yes to everything. And so what I ended up doing was I had this thousands of emails across that time. And I give this talk to the freshmen at NYU, basically saying this should be the four-year period for you where you say yes to everything. And what I do is I bring out some of these emails. I actually bring out screenshots. And I take the four emails that during that period changed my life. One of them pushed me on a path to write books. One of them exposed me to a particular kind of consulting that I do now. One of them introduced me to someone who changed the way I think about all sorts of ideas. They all had a colossal effect on my life, but there were thousands of emails that I said yes to that didn't do that. So if you focus on just those four, you say, wow, you were so lucky to get those four emails, but they were swimming in a sea of thousands of emails that didn't produce that outcome. The way luck landed on my lap was that I just said yes to everything. And so I think throwing a lot of darts at the dartboard is where luck comes from. Yeah, I guess the cliche saying of like, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And exactly. then you generally find that the winners are the ones that either go the longest or you know, make the most attempts, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you talk about the topic of like stubborn traps and you talk about like traps and lures. What are stubborn traps? Yeah, I, I mean, I think traps disguise themselves different ways. One of the interesting things when you talk about being stuck is the idea that there's a period when you're not stuck and then you are stuck and something has to happen between not being stuck and becoming stuck. And very often what it is, is one of two things. It's either a thing that looks really small and trivial and so it doesn't attract enough attention and then it becomes a big thing all of a sudden. And so I talk in the book a lot about preventive maintenance, which is what aircraft mechanics do. You know, you're trying to keep the plane in the air as much as possible, but at the same time, you want to make sure that the plane is safe. And so they use these different levels of maintenance. Like every time a plane lands, there's a very brief form of maintenance to make sure it's airworthy. But there are also A, B, C, and D level checks. D level checks are the most intensive. They take the plane out of the sky for like months every few years to make sure that the plane is safe. And so there are all these different kind of layers of preventive maintenance to make sure that anything small doesn't become really big to the point where the plane's no longer flying. And so that's the first one. Make sure that you deal with small issues today so they don't get bigger. The second one is a lot of things feel like they're far away and then they suddenly arrive. The great kind of cultural example of this is the Y2K bug, the millennium bug. This idea that between 1999 and the year 2000, computers, because they relied on the, the last two digits of the year, when they went from 99 to 00 in the year 2000, some of them would think that it was the year 1900, which would screw up all the dating that they did on everything. They would think 1st of January 2000 was actually the 1st of January 1900. So there were fears that planes would fall out of the sky, all sorts of stuff would happen. Now, this was first recognized by a guy who worked at IBM named Bob Beamer in, in the 60s. So a very long time before the year 2000. And Beamer said, we need to fix this. And we need to fix it before everyone has computers. Because obviously, there's going to be a proliferation of computers. It's going to be a really big problem when the year 2000 comes. 
So let's do it in the 60s when there were like a handful of computers to deal with. And everyone said, no, let's not worry about this. It's 40 years down the line. Someone else will deal with it. Governments ended, ended up spending billions and billions of dollars on what was a massive problem. And so that's a classic example of a problem that could have been solved with just a little bit of attention. And humans do that in their own lives too, with injuries and with everything, you know, a sore tooth that ends up becoming a major issue. All that sort of stuff needs to be just addressed. And I don't think we do that enough. What are some, I guess, just strategies for approaching some of those smaller problems? Because I know there's a lot of leaders that are listening that keep track of metrics in their business. You know, metrics seems off one month, then it's off the second month and the phone starts ringing a little bit less. And, and before you know it, these things become exacerbated. But it's simple in nature to think, hey, if we just address these things sooner, they would never blow up later on. But how do you know which problems to address? Yeah, there's a term we use in psychology, a priori, which basically means predetermined. You don't make the decision after the fact. So that's post hoc. Post hoc would be where something starts going wrong and then you say, oh, my numbers are going down. Is it time to intervene? It's too late. What you've got to do a priori before it happens is to say, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I'll know that when the number gets to this, the alarm bell goes off and we do something. So what you do is you say, okay, today my sales are, I make 100 sales a month. If I drop below 85, there's an alarm bell that should be going off and then I've got to do something about it. And that should be determined based on the context of all the things that you're doing in your organization. But that's not the only thing you're worrying about, sales. You've got to worry about your employees and you've got to worry about leadership decisions and you've got to worry about the state of the economy and COVID and you know there are a million things to worry about. But there's got to be in the constellation of those issues, a set of guidelines that say to you, this is now a problem that has reached a level that requires intervention. Really important things, you've got to intervene quickly. Other things that are perhaps secondary, you could say, look, if that's not a really important metric, if it drops down to 60 out of 100 or 50 out of 100, I'm okay. It's got to get to 40 or 30 before I really intervene. But you've got to make that decision one day, like take a week or two days or however long you need to make those decisions so you have those guidelines in place, share them with your organization so everyone knows, and then move forward and forget about it until you need to worry about it. It's like setting those thresholds proactively. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. What about the other types of traps? I know you talk about novelty traps, and I'm sure a lot of people who are going to be listening to this podcast, this is something that I know many leaders fall into. And I know you even state that sometimes people overestimate the novelty of their ideas. Yeah. Oh, the originality idea. Yeah. I, that's one that I find really fascinating. So this is, you know, in business and creativity generally, we sort of fetishize and strive for radical originality. You know, everyone wants a radically new product, a radically new idea, a radically new form of art or film or music or whatever. doesn't matter what it is. And if that's what you're striving for, you are almost always going to fail. And that's going to get you stuck because that is vanishingly rare. It doesn't really exist. In fact, with my MBA students, I ask them in one of the first classes, Let's talk about products. Why don't you tell me the last product you saw or bought or encountered that was radically new, different from anything that came before it? It's borderline impossible to come up with an example. And you can push back really easily. You know, people say things like the iPad. And you're like, come on, there were tablets around before that. It was just a better executed tablet. What about the iPhone? Well, the BlackBerry was not exactly the same, but it was an internet-enabled phone that could do many of the same things. Now, the iPhone maybe did it better or definitely did it better. And so... What you end up coming to is the idea that everything is essentially one of two things. It's either a better version of something that came before, or it's two old things that are bolted together in a new way, which I call recombination. So instead of saying, 
I need something that's radically new. What you should do is you should collect all these good ideas over time. I have a document where I do this. It's every good idea that I ever come across. And then if you're stuck, you go and you say, I'm going to pick randomly idea number three and idea number 412. Oh, that's what those are. Let's see if there's a way to combine them in a way that no human has done before. And there's my product and I'm going to sell that. I think recombination is much more effective than novelty and originality because those things in their purest form are just myths. They don't exist. And recombination in particular, it seems to be quite common in like the pharmaceutical industry, for example, where a, a drug is created for one purpose and then ultimately they realize through some edge case that it can actually be used for something completely different. And then that drug takes off. I know you give an example of the discovery of Viagra in the book yeah. that talks about this. So it's just bringing two ideas together, using them in a new way. Yeah, exactly. And really it's about being receptive to that. So the real lesson from all the pharmaceutical examples, and there are a lot of them, you know, like almost every sweetener that we use, aspartame, sucralose, all the sweeteners that we use in commercial practice, they make companies billions of dollars. They are very lucrative. Every single case of one of those sweeteners being discovered was some irresponsible lab tech who accidentally tasted a substance that was for a different purpose. And they were like, oh, this white powder is really sweet, like so sweet that I can't even take the taste of it. I wonder if there's an application there. And there must be thousands of other cases of people tasting sweet stuff and just being like, oh, that's disgusting. I don't want to eat that again. And moving on with their lives. And that's the case with Viagra as well. That famous case that you mentioned is this chemist, David Brown, in the UK. He was trying for years to find a heart drug to treat angina, to treat a particular kind of heart pain. And he failed time and time and time again. And Pfizer was getting frustrated and they were like, you've got one more chance. And he gave this pill, this formulation of the pill to a whole lot of miners from Wales, these lumberjacks or miners, I can't remember. These guys get into a room, they're all talking, and he's like, did anyone feel that their heart pain was improved? And they're all like, not really, I don't think it really helped. And as they're all leaving, they're packing up, they're folding up the chairs, one of the guys comes over to him and says, I did have this one weird side effect. And he turns to the whole group and he's like, did anyone else have an erection that lasted for hours? And they're all like, yeah, that's what I had. And he was like, this is amazing. Now, someone else would have been like, that's embarrassing. Let's move on and forget this happened. What he does is he goes back to his managers and he's like, I can imagine that some guys would really like a pill that does this. And he sells it and he ends up making over the years $40 billion for Pfizer. So that receptiveness to pivoting and to recombination is critical. And throughout the book, you emphasize the importance of experimentation and even exploring different possibilities. How can leaders, just many of those who are listening to this podcast, encourage a culture of experimentation and even curiosity within their teams? Yeah, well, let me put a spin on that. I think it's very important that you allow people to experiment the way Dave Burkhoff's swim instructor, a swim coach at Harvard did. Joe Bernal was great about that. And he said, try different things. If you turn someone into a chronic experimentalist, you will not get the best from them. You want some experimentation, but you have to alternate between experimentation or exploration as it's called and exploitation. So what that means is, I'll give you an example from the world of art. Jackson Pollock, before he became known for the drip painting technique that he became very famous for and made huge money from, he was trying five or six other art techniques, some of them very traditional, some of them slightly new. And at some point after that period of experimentation, he said, okay, I've got to kind of focus on one thing. What's been working really well, this drip technique seems to be my thing. And then he just only does that. Going from being a very broad omnivore who's consuming everything to someone who says, I only want to do this thing. The same is true of Peter Jackson, the filmmaker. 
he was making horror films and all these other sorts of films. And then eventually he was like, I'm going to be the guy who makes Tolkien films. I'm going to do the Hobbit films. I'm going to do the Lord of the Rings films. And he becomes the guy, the go-to with his studio in New Zealand for exactly that. And is obviously very, very good at it. That's what you need in workplaces. So whether you divide it into teams, like this is the experimental team and this is the exploitation team, or whether it's by time, maybe for three months of the year, we all experiment. Maybe it's a different three months for each organization, sub-organization, so you're not all experimenting. But give people time to roam the pastures of their minds and find new things, but then say, okay, you've been doing that for three months. What were the best three things you found? Now let's try and make hay out of those. Let's really dig ourselves into those and figure out what value we can get from them. I think that's a really winning philosophy for any organization because you need both of those things and you need experimentation to come first so that you can exploit the results of that later on. Yeah, agreed. It seems like even today, I, I don't know if this will date the podcast, but even in the discussion of AI, we hear of organizations that are creating almost just experimentation teams within their organizations that are essentially AI task forces. We've created one in our organization and a lot of it just stems around use a number of different AI tools, see what works well, see what efficiency improvements are, and then we'll meet and discuss what we're going to implement. I can't imagine much being more valuable today than having in an organization that's large enough for this, a person or a set of people who are just working to figure out the best use cases in that organization for AI tech, for generative AI as it exists today. There can't be much that's more useful that will have better returns today for an organization than to be exploratory about AI. Because it's only been around, this version of generative AI has been around now for only for less than a year. There's already a massive proliferation of platforms and they change so rapidly, they get better every day. It behooves us to understand what they do and which ones are valuable for us. And so I totally agree. And if you're an organization of one, you're a sole entrepreneur who works on his or her own, spend an hour each week doing it. Have that be your generative AI exploration hour or whatever you want to call it. Preferably do it for more than an hour. But if you don't have time, do it for an hour and you'll find that the returns will be pretty significant. And as you get towards the end of the book, I know you talk about the fact that when we faced with a sense of being stuck, you argue that taking action is really the best way to not only build helpful habits, but also prevent long-term friction. What type of action are we, are we talking about? Is it just do something versus nothing and kind of overthinking a scenario? Like what, what's the best approach? Yeah. At first, I think that's right. I think it, it doesn't really matter because by definition, you can't be stuck if you're acting. In an almost sort of Zen terms, if you're moving, you're not stuck. And I think that's true on a sort of trite level, on a sort of weak philosophical level. But I also think it's true in ways that are more grounded and important. One of them is that if you're moving, if you're making progress, you demonstrate to yourself that you're not stuck. And that's very important because the emotional consequences of being stuck are quite damaging. And the sense of progress, that sense of velocity that comes from progress is very important for making further progress. So stuckness compounds gets worse over time, but so does unsticking compound and get better over time. So that's the first thing. The second thing is one of my favorite anecdotes is from the songwriter and writer Jeff Tweedy from the band Wilco, the rock band Wilco. Tweedy talks about the fact that being a creative is exhausting. He writes books and he also writes music and he's like, I don't want to wake up every day and make creative new things. And he's got this great metaphor. He basically says, you know, some days you wake up and it's like, there's water, there's crystal clear water of all the creative ideas, but on top of that, there's the muck. It's like a pond with scum on top of it. And you've got to pour that out, pour out the dirty water so that the clean water can emerge. And so how do you do that? You act. 
And so what he does is he says, the only way I can act some mornings is to liberate myself to do really bad work. So he'll say something like, I'm going to write the worst sentence I can write. Just anything that pours out of my head, the worst thing you've ever read, that's what I'm going to do. Or I'm going to write the most boring musical phrase you could imagine, something really trite. And if he does that for 15 minutes, which by the way, for someone like Jeff Tweedy is very easy to do, find something that's easy for you, lower the threshold all the way down to the ground, suddenly you're doing stuff. And then since the ball's moving, it's only a small step from there to making things that are actually useful and valuable to you. And so I find that extremely compelling. And that's why the last chapter in the book is titled Action Above All, because the most important thing, all of the strategizing and the emotions, all of that is in the service of acting. So we have to act. Yeah. And with the expression, sometimes one not knowing if they're three feet from gold, how does somebody know? I mean, I know in the book you talk about near misses and there's still indicators of progress and opportunities for success, but how does somebody know versus just getting demoralized? Yeah. So you're always at the point of saying, so I'm stuck. I've got two options, continue on or quit, do something different. And there is a cottage industry of books written about either end of the spectrum. On the one hand, you've got books like Grit by Angela Duckworth about continuing on and striving and that is a brilliant book and Angela is brilliant and I totally agree with her. And then you've got a brilliant, an equally brilliant book called Quit by Annie Duke, which basically says the menu of options is so great that if you feel stuck, just do something different. Why keep doing a thing that's forcing you to, to get stuck? I think both of them are smart enough to not say that that is the only way, that their way is the only way. They recognize there's a middle ground. I tend to lean a little bit more in the grit direction, just that I think that we should probably generally do more because there's a payoff to doing a little bit more before we quit but sometimes recognize that we need to quit. The way you know that you need to quit, I think, is over time you should measure the distance between where you are and where you need or would like to be. And it should shrink. Imagine my goal is to speak a new language or to write 100,000 words for a book or whatever it is. I should see where I am and where that end state is getting closer and that should be shrinking and hopefully shrinking at a rapid and increasing rate. So I'm getting closer and closer and closer over time. If what's happening is that that's not changing and I'm fixed in place, or even that there's a divergence, I'm getting further and further away, it might be time to quit. So I, I think that's important is to look at the velocity and the, the nature of that movement towards the goal as a guide to whether you should be doing something else. And also always ask yourself, what's the opportunity cost? What am I not doing because I'm doing this thing, which is what Annie talks about in Quit. Make sure that you know that this is the best use of your time in this moment. And Adam, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think being a game changer is doing two things. I think it's bringing a, a sort of grounded, firm wisdom about a thing that you do really well, that you've done for a long time. This really builds on what I said earlier, but also bringing this kind of hunger for novelty and curiosity to do new things and learn new things. And I think the reason that's game changing is because there's huge value in expertise in going really deep into something. But I think demonstrating to others that you're nimble and willing to be a beginner and willing to try new things is itself a form of leadership. And I think it's a very important form. So be an expert, but be very open to being a novice. I want to give a huge thank you to Adam Alter for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. 
And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Adam Alter, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.